Holy Gospel is written in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, beginning at the 32nd verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who'd followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord, may your word live in us bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Luke 23, 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They crucified three of them on that day, put them up on crosses. Nowadays, we're used to crosses. You might even be wearing one as a piece of jewellery. We see crosses on memorials, churches, and so on. The first readers of the Gospel of Luke were also used to crosses. They'd seen them set up in public places 
at crossroads and and the like. They'd seen the poor wretches having already been viciously scourged beforehand, hanging on them in pain, gasping for breath, dying in public. Crucifixion was regarded as the worst kind of death. It was a harsh, violent and painful public deterrent. Its purpose was to publicly degrade and shame its victims in the most cruel kind of way. It was for the worst kind of criminal. As Tom Holland, historian in his widely published ancient historian, wrote in his recent book, Dominion, quote, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion, close quotes. So when those first readers saw the words, they crucified him there along with the criminals, they knew exactly what that meant. Luke's description of Jesus' crucifixion emphasizes the shame and mocking that Jesus is subject to. His astounding weakness and helplessness seems to bring out the worst in those observing him. Yet there is, there is isn't it one exception, actually two, but I'll deal with just the one. What particularly seems to enrage people is the ridiculous contrast between the character of Jesus' earlier ministry with his present predicament, between the big claims made about him and the reality of what he looks like now, a stupid, weak loser. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. He saved others is a reference to his miraculous healings and deliverances. But look at him now. He literally cannot lift a finger to save himself. Remember, crucifixion was a a cruel punishment that emphasized the shameful weakness of its victim. As for the alleged claim he was God's Messiah, his chosen one, that looks pretty stupid now. It's utterly discredited. The soldiers of the crucifixion detail also joined in, although they made a more political point in their mockery. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The title king of the Jews had been used by the last independent revolutionary rulers of Palestine and Jewish people, the Maccabees. It was also the title that the Roman Senate had given Herod the Great some 60 years earlier. It meant the one who ruled and saved the Jews. This king of the Jews can't even save himself. The soldiers probably got the idea from the notice on the cross, which normally announced the crime for which the victim was being punished. In Jesus' case, it was a sarcastic take on the false allegation that had been made about him by the temple authorities to get the Romans to be interested in having him executed. That is, i.e., that he was a seditious threat, that he pretended to be king of the Jews. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Even that is making fun of Jesus. It went so far as even one of the criminals being crucified, in his own anger and bitterness, mocked Jesus mercilessly. Jesus' weakness seemed to have enraged him. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? 
Save yourself and us. Then something completely unexpected. There is one who does not join in to the pylon. The last person you might have expected. Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In fact, quite a few present would have known that was true. Despite all the goings on, Jesus had really done nothing wrong to deserve this punishment being melted out to him. But this real criminal is the one who says it. This man has done nothing wrong. And then, something completely out of the blue. Verse 44. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I have no idea why he would have said that. Has he had contact with Jesus before? Or at least, has he heard reports about him? How is it he believes that a weak, beaten, dying man, unable to move on the cross next to him, is going to come into his kingdom? What does he think is going to happen? We simply have no idea. What we do have is Jesus' reply, which is almost as remarkable as the request. 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Persian word which had been taken over into the Greek and other languages, meaning a park or garden symbolises a place of beauty and delight, like the Garden of Eden. On Jesus' lips, it seemed to be referring to the place of repose for the righteous dead. Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians 12 as a parallel to the phrase, the third heaven. Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus coming into his kingdom may yet be a way off. I'm thinking either of his resurrection in a few days' time or his glorious arrival at the end of the age. But nonetheless, he can reassure this criminal who's asked to be remembered. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today with me in paradise. Truly astounding, the request and the reply. And as you heard in the reading, that's not the end of Luke's narrative. There's still the terrible three hours of darkness. There's still Jesus' last cry, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There's still his final last breath to come. As well as the comment by the centurion in charge, which strangely echoes the second criminal's judgment. Surely, surely this man was a righteous man. And of course, there's still to come the astounding events on the third day we'll hear about on this Sunday. But for now, I want to focus on the interaction between the second criminal and Jesus under two headings. First, the sharp difference displayed here between those who on one hand think the crucified Jesus is a pathetic, stupid loser, and on the other hand, the criminal who believes he'll be coming in his, into his kingdom, 
has marked much of the reaction to the gospel ever since. Deep divisions over the status of the crucified Jesus was a major feature of reactions to the early Christian movement and their announcement that a crucified man was Lord. St. Paul reports this in his letter of 1 Corinthians. Verse 18, you heard this in our New Testament reading. Paul reports on his experience. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the cross, the announcement that the crucified Jesus is Lord, created a completely divisive response. To some, it was foolishness. To others, the power of God. And the word he uses for foolishness is the Greek word morea, which means moronic or stupid. The message of the cross is stupid to those who are perishing. But to us, it's for being saved, it's the power of God. Stupid versus the power of God. You can't get a, a more divided response. And you, you, we would have heard Paul outlines how the gospel typically met with massive disappointment. Expectations were absolutely destroyed with the announcement as Paul went round the Greco-Roman world. He says in verse 25, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. That is, Jews look for miracles, acts of power as signs of the divine presence. Greeks look for profound insights into reality, wisdom. But what do they get? But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to, to Jews and foolishness, stupidity to Greeks. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously disappointed people. You find the same over 100 years later. Justin Martyr writes, in the mid-2nd century, I quote, they say our madness consists in the fact we put a crucified man in second place after the unchangeable and eternal God. Today, attitudes, I think, are a little different, partly because most of us only know of crucifixion from the crucifixion of Jesus and don't have the visceral reaction to it that the ancients had. Though there's still something of the foolishness, the stupidity of the message of the cross still remaining even today. To be honest, it is still very difficult for many to see God at work in that day of darkness and suffering. Islam denies it completely, asserting that the great prophet Isa was not killed or crucified at all. And today, by many may admire Jesus, they don't see much more in his death than tragic stupidity. However, as with that criminal on the cross next to Jesus, there was another reaction that stood out. Contrary to the first, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1 again, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul unpacks this further in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those whom God has called, the power that Jews seek, the wisdom that Greeks seek, are to be found in Christ crucified after all. Such people, like the criminal on the cross, perceive God paradoxically at work in the weakness 
and foolishness of the crucified Jesus. As Paul puts it rather beautifully, for the foolishness of God, you could put more literally, the stupidity of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. That's what the criminal saw. It is so paradoxical, it is clearly confronting. That's why today is a day of confronting hope. But second, let me speak a bit more personally and more briefly to you about our need and his ability. Our need. This morning, we are each of us in as much need as that criminal on the cross who asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Both now and especially in the face of death, before which we are completely helpless. Before which we are completely helpless. Our only hope is his ability, not anything we can conjure up. A few years ago, I was touched by a hymn I had not heard of before that beautifully picks up our gospel passage in a most arresting way. It's the hymn, According to Thy Gracious Word, written back in 1825 by Scottish writer James Montgomery. It's a hymn for the Holy Communion, and the first five stanzas are about us promising to remember Jesus in his death. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we sing about. According to thy gracious word in deep humility, this will I do, my dying Lord, I will remember thee. Thy body broken for my sake, my bread from heaven shall be. Thy testamental cup I take, and thus remember thee. And so on. The fifth verse. Remember thee and all thy pains, and all thy love for me. Yea, while a breath, a pulse remains, will I remember thee. But what? But it's the last verse that puts it all into perspective. What about in death, or possibly in dementia, when breath and pulse no longer remain? What then can we promise? What hope do we have then? Here's the last stanza. And when these failing lips grow dumb, and mind and memory flee, when thou shalt in thy kingdom come, Jesus Remember me. Being remembered by Jesus is our only hope in the face of death. So let's pray that prayer by singing the hymn.